If you turn over to uh, Romans chapter 9, and I promise that I'll finish this today, but I wanted to wrap up this uh, very, I think, extremely beautiful chapter in the Bible, but it can be somewhat disconcerting because of the subject matter that's there. But let's read this, uh, and we're just going to start at verse 22 and go through it quickly, and then I'll say a few few things about uh, This chapter. Now hear God's word. In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will now call my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. And then at the place where they were told, You are not my people, there they shall be called the children of the living God. And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. It was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law, instead of by trusting Him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the Scriptures when He said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble. A rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in Him will never be disgraced. This is the word of the Lord. So I've tried to take a little different angle on this chapter. It's controversial because it talks about predestination and election. And it gives us the willies, frankly, because we think that God is not being fair or that he's just choosing and electing people willy-nilly with no regard to them at all, uh, just sort of arbitrarily reaching out and grabbing folks and saying, well, this one I saved, and this one's not going to be saved, and that kind of thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth than that. To truly understand this doctrine, you have to do a little bit of work. You've got to spend some time thinking, and not just thinking superficially, but thinking uh, biblically. How does the Bible approach 
the condition of man and what in the world would be the value of explaining to us this doctrine of election. Why would God do that? Just to disturb our peace of mind and get us fighting amongst ourselves, amongst Christians? Well, no, of course not. Then why is it there? And so what I've told you is, rather than uh, harping or overemphasizing the doctrine of election, uh, I've emphasized a, a different approach, a doctrine of assurance, a doctrine of faithfulness that God is saying to His people. When things get bad, when you're doubting, or when you've been raised in a tradition that is other than Christianity, or even if you've been raised in the church, or whatever the condition is, I will see to it that my people are saved. I will bring to them the truth of the gospel in such a way that they are able to believe on their own, freely, free will, finally, free will. Anyone that thinks you have free will is living under an illusion. There is something out there that the entire human race is having to deal with every moment of every day until we die. And that is not free will. It's the lack of freedom in our will. Our will has been constrained by sin and death. We can't get away from it. We can't ignore that it's not there. So God does not save some people and then destine other people into the grave. That would be absurd. But the language in the Bible sometimes can be confusing, and so we're going to look at, at uh, a little bit of that today. Just quickly, I've, I've belabored this topic long enough. My brother David, as I've reminded you, has been always um, famous for saying theology is all about vocabulary, and it truly is. Because if you look at the Bible and you say, what does the word grace mean? Here's an example. Does grace mean help or assistance? Or does grace mean grace plus nothing? In other words, there's no help or assistance from anybody or anything. Is grace a helping hand? Or is grace the power of God and His determination to do something apart from, sometimes in spite of? Yes? Mercy. Same thing. What do you mean by mercy? Kind of forgiving somebody? Sort of giving them a pass? Kind of taking... No, mercy is absolute. If God gives mercy, no punishment. And that punishment goes somewhere. It just doesn't disappear. He doesn't just throw it up in the air like a, a vapor or a smoke or something. It goes somewhere. The punishment, instead of mercy, the punishment deserved goes somewhere. And in Christianity, we say it goes on our Savior. What does it mean to have faith? Faith is not, I've told you this and I'm going to remind you again, it is not a commodity. It is not a thing that you have that you have to exercise. Faith is simply trusting someone else, a decision to trust. And every one of you has faith. You've got lots of faith. We trust all kinds of things. I go to the ATM. I put my card in. I actually believe that that machine will give me money. Now, you've got to have a lot of faith to do that. There you are with a little piece of plastic, and you're pushing it in there, and you believe that out is going to come money. So don't say, I can't believe. Yeah, you believe a lot of things. 
But what is your belief in? What are you placing your faith? Or better yet, in Christianity we say, who are you placing your faith in? Who is the object of your faith? So, here's some positive things about the doctrine of election. I'll give you these real quick, and then uh, we'll, we'll go on and talk about three things today. Our responsibility that is clearly uh, marked out in this verse, or in these verses, uh, God's sovereignty, which is not up for debate. And again, we'll, we'll define what we mean when we say sovereignty. And then finally, this look at God's rock and what, what that's all about. So here's some positive things. This is from Tim Keller's uh, study on Romans. It's really good. There's more than these, but he gives four that I think are just terrific. Why should we embrace the doctrine of election even with some of the questions unanswered that the doctrine of election brings up, why should we embrace it? Why is it such a good thing? First of all, worship. Here's what Dr. Keller says. Nothing can fill you with so much praise and joy as to realize that not one molecule of credit For your salvation belongs to you, but rather to the Lord. Do you see how that would just stimulate a vibrant, lively worship? You're not ho-hum and kind of, oh, well. No, God has acted in time and space in a remarkable display of power and love and grace. And it's that, out of that, we worship Him. Because it's not up to us. We couldn't have saved ourselves if He'd have thrown us ten life preservers because we weren't on the surface of the sea kind of paddling and, and, you know, treading water. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were underneath the ocean. We were at the bottom of the ocean in the chaos and the death of the grave. And He came in there and got us and brought us out. If that's not grounds for worship, folks, nothing is. And so worship is enhanced by a steely embrace of this wonderful doctrine. Humility. This is great. People who know this doctrine are able to look at other people and literally say, there but for the grace of God go I. You see, in the back of our minds, and it is hard, hard to uproot, is this idea that all human beings are kind of on a scale. There's good people, there's moderate people, there's really bad people, then there's really, really bad people, and then there are animals and scum and dirt and trash. And, you know, we have all kinds of names we want to put on people. And whether we know it or not, we are always, at different times of the day and whatever we're doing or reading, we're kind of putting ourselves on that scale somewhere, somehow. And the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible very clearly says all have what? Sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's there's no grades to sin. It's all bad. Some are more consequential than others. Some do more damage than others. Some have uh, greater punishment than others. All agree. But sin, the least sin, 
separates us from God to an extent that we have no more passport. We're outside the garden. We can't get back in. There's no way back in. And if you fool yourself and think, well, you know, I can get back in. How? What are you going to do? I'm going to work hard. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give the church all my money, which we do encourage. Uh, I'm going to do, you know, none of that is going to get you anywhere. Is it a good thing to do those? Yes. But is it going to make you right with God? Impossible. And I know it's impossible, and you should too, because in order to overcome that idea that it's possible, God spent the life of His Son. And hence the rock that we're going to look at in a minute. That's in our way. You're not going to get around that rock. You're not going to go to God with your good works and your, your wonderful personality and all whatever it is that you want to bring to Him, your sincerity. You're not going to bring that stuff to Him and say, look at this, this is really good. He may say, yeah, that's really good, but He has to look at that. And that's really good. That cross is really good. That life of that man, Jesus, is really good. It is beyond anybody's imagination. And He did it as a human being. That's what we're going to start celebrating next week. Advent, Jesus did this as a human being. Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Do you see that? It's incredible. And so that's in God's windshield when He looks around this world and He says to us very graciously, come to me. Trust me. Well, I don't know if I'm elect or not. If there's even one tiny bit of desire in your heart for God, it got there because He put it there. Can I have an amen? amen. Yes! Even people that don't believe in the doctrine of election will say that. But that's as far as they're willing to think. They won't think down deeper to the logical conclusion that if that's not the case, then what is the case? Well, it's a decision I make or it's something I do. Humility. This will humble us down to our our, our, our knees, down to the ground. It will humble us and we can look around and say, you know, there's nobody out there who I'm better than. There just isn't. If everything, all the superficial layers, folks, were stripped away, and we saw you naked for what you really are, if you saw, well, we didn't want to go there and think of that awful image, but if you saw anybody naked the way God sees us, it would be a horror. We are responsible for that horror. And He looks right into the heart of that darkness and takes it out, which should drop us to our knees in love and look around at our fellow human beings with hope. And that's the third thing Dr. Keller says. It makes us hopeful about others. Some think that election makes us less motivated to witness. But not so. Now I know that it is not, listen folks, it's not my eloquence that will win people nor their open minds. In fact, election means we can treat anyone, even the worst cases, with great hope. 
Because God can work with any kind of material. It doesn't matter how together we have it. I don't know where he found you, folks. I don't know. Some of you were raised in the church and you just never knew a day in your life that Jesus didn't love you. And for that we rejoice. But there are others of us that he had to go into the gutter to get us. And uh, I know that when I tell you that I was in the gutter, you don't believe me. But it's, I know it's hard to believe because of my upstanding personality and my rigorous obedience to God and... Uh, how clean and cut, you know, really looking good, and yeah. <laughs> Folks, don't kid yourself. You know what? I, I know at my age now, and having trusted Jesus since, I don't know, seven, 18 years old, the, the closer I get to him, the more I'm amazed. How could he have possibly loved me? And for what? That I was going to turn out to be this illustrious pastor who just makes everybody's eyes sparkle. <laughs> the only being in this universe whose eyes truly sparkle when they see me are the eyes of that man on the cross. His eyes sparkle. And not because I've done anything to deserve it but simply because He loves me. Now that makes you hopeful. And finally, confidence, assurance, and boldness. One of the things that really nails Christians is life gets rough, you get sick, something happens like Dawson told us last week, Psalm 6, you know, the psalmist is probably facing an illness, a bodily illness, or maybe a mental illness, who knows what it is. Whatever it is, you're facing something and the first thing we say is, why is this happening to me? What is going on? Why am I suffering? And so the doctrine of election comes in and answers that for you down at the very roots of the question. Whatever's happening to you, do not fear. Hold fast. Why? Because he is holding me fast. I'm not holding him. In reality, he's got me tied up. I'm not tying a rope, a knot at the end of the rope and hanging on for dear life. He has got me. I'm elect for nothing, no reason of my own. He just loves me and he has poured himself into me. And that should give us confidence, assurance, and boldness. In his book, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer goes on about this chapter after chapter. That election should give us boldness and courage even when we're being assaulted by disease or mental problems or no money in the checkbook or our kids go off the rails or our parents go off the rails or whoever's off the rails. We can stand fast knowing it's not going to be our nagging them. It's not going to be our good, wonderful apologetics, as good as our apologetics can be, at giving them reasons to believe. It's not at the end of the day, those are just means to an end. The end is in Jesus Christ sending His Holy Spirit to regenerate, to give you birth from above. And once that birth from above takes place, then you can believe. Then you are free. The shackles come off. And we see Him for who He is and what He has done. And we are saved.
That's all it is. Now you say, well, what about the other people? Well, let's talk about that very quickly. Our responsibility. Look at verse 22. Even though God has a right to show His anger and power, He is very patient with those on whom His anger falls. The word those, a lot, but scholars are divided about who He's talking about, but those could very well be all of humanity. Those upon whom His anger is deserved. Very rarely do good people think God's anger is deserved uh, on them. And if you don't believe you deserve God's anger, um, you can come talk to me or Dawson or one of our elders. We'll tell you in about two seconds why he ought to be mad at you. And you'll give us good excuses why you shouldn't. And we'll give you some good reasons why you should. You see, if you're courageous enough to face your sin... If you really look it in the face, Steve Brown used to tell us, you've got to look the demon in the face and kiss him on the lips. You've got to get right up next to that stuff that's in us. And you've got to be honest about it. You've got to strip it bare, as bare as you can stand it, and look at it and say, but for the grace of God go I. Yes? I mean... And that's what he's saying here. We don't know that God's very patient. Why should he be patient for one second? Does he owe us something? Do we deserve something? What is behind this kind of warped thinking? I can't, I don't know. I just know why my thinking is warped. I don't know why yours is. But human beings have an infinite capacity to excuse themselves. Right? They do. We're just really good at it. Then in 22, the second part, he says, those destined for destruction. I talked about this last week or a couple weeks ago. That word destined is really unfortunate. It's the only way that I think the translators get around it. But it doesn't mean that it's predetermined in some way that the person is going to be uh, non-elect, which troubles a lot of people. Somehow he's not going to, oh my goodness, uh, Choose, I'm going to choose Chuck, but I'm not going to choose Marty V. And therefore, he works unbelief in my wife. See, I wouldn't dare name any of you, but she'll forgive me. Uh, work unbelief in Marty V. Does not do that in any way. The unbelief is already there. They were already prepared, ripe. In fact, a, a more literal translation of that word Katartizo uh, should be probably ripe for destruction. So what Paul is saying is very careful. He used a very rare word. He used a rare form of the word. It's actually, those of you that are English majors, maybe you know what a passive participle is. He uses a passive participle. And here's what one Greek scholar said about it that I just think it's fantastic. The participle denotes a present state previously formed. In other words, this destined or prepared or being ripe is a present state and it was, it was previously formed, but the agency, who formed that present state, that state of rebellion that the human race is in, who is responsible, who is the responsible agent 
And from the very first message in this Roman series, I told you, the human race wants to blame God. Adam and Eve tried to blame God. They tried to blame the devil. The devil made me do it. We are always trying to blame somebody else for our business. And Romans, right out of the gate, 18 through 32, we're going to talk about that next week. No, you're responsible. Take your responsibility. The human race is responsible for the condition of this world and for our own conditions. So, uh, Dr. Woost goes on and says, the participle denotes a present state previously formed but gives no hint. Listen, you've got to think a little bit. Gives no hint of how it has been formed. An agency of some kind was there that the objects of final wrath had themselves a hand in the matter the apostle has probably chosen this form of the word because being ready or prepared or ripe certainly arises from a continual and reciprocal action between human sin and divine judgment. You see, he's, what, he's, what the scholar here is saying is that we are constantly rebelling and repenting and then rebelling again and repenting. I mean, we're just, this, is, it, this is life. So, any judgment, when you talk about judgment, God's judgment, we have to understand that judgment is in a relationship with behavior on our part that we, sometimes you can't control it, but most often you can. There are exceptions. And we don't want to accept that agency. And Paul is brilliant. He says he leaves the agency ambiguous or passive so that you will absorb the idea God did not act to cause me to sin. He never does. He is not the author of sin. He cannot be tempted by sin. Sin is outside of his... Sin is a deprivation. It is an evil. It is darkness. St. Augustine said sin is a deprivation of good. And we go to that and feed ourselves with it. John Stott put it a little bit better and, and simpler. If anybody is lost, listen, if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody be saved, the credit is God's. This antinomy, antinomy contains a mystery, that's a con- you know, that seeming contradiction, which our present knowledge cannot solve, but is consistent with the Scripture, history, and experience. The reality of our responsibility cannot be denied. We are responsible. God has been patient. And God has acted in ways so that we could be saved. So what about His sovereignty? Remember... Uh, Theology is all about vocabulary. What do we mean when we say sovereignty? Well, in America, uh, uh, our view of, of sovereignty is uh, the king is sovereign until we throw his tea into the Boston Harbor. The king is sovereign until we rebel and claim our freedom and our rights. And that can be true in a human sense. Uh, we do have a right to rebel against unjust leaders and things like that. 
But this king is a just king, a good king, and he has a different kind of sovereignty, not one that is bestowed upon him by birth or uh, government or anything else. His sovereignty is his alone. That's what he is. He is sovereign. You can't limit that kind of sovereignty. You can't put a bubble around it and say, well, we're, I'm sovereign over everything, but I'm going to create this little thing over here, this little pocket of non-sovereignty so that the human being can be sovereign. Do you see how outrageous that is? I will limit my sovereignty, which is already impossible, but I'll do that, and I'll create a little pocket of sovereignty for the human being so they can be sovereign. Show me a verse, and I will get down on my knees and kiss your feet. Show me a single verse in the Bible that even intimates that. Everywhere is the opposite. Everywhere. We're not on our feet to kiss God. We're in His face shaking our fist at Him. And if we do seek Him, the Bible says that He is the one leading us to repentance. His goodness leads us to repentance. God's sovereignty. Look at verse 23 and 24. He does this to make the riches of His glory shine even brighter now. Here, Paul explicitly and rigorously defines the agency. See, before he doesn't define the agency of why we're living in unbelief, here he does define the agency. It's brilliant. I don't know how these guys do it in a few words like that. Look, it takes me a, it takes me a half hour to say anything. And in one verse, the Apostle Paul can explain something. Listen. He does this to make the riches of His glory shine even brighter on those He, this is an emphatic, He shows mercy. Those He prepared in advance, different word, prepared in advance for glory. Those He selected, both Jews and Gentiles. You see, He took a positive action to save us. He did something to save you that predated anything that we would have done or think. He did that for His own glory and to share with you the grace of salvation. And the first word out of anybody's mouth is, what? That's not fair. Well, when you say that's not fair, you're assuming that you would be fair more fair than God in deciding your own fate. Let me ask you adults a question. Thankfully our kids are out because they're still, you know, they're still little and they, but you adults, really? You really that confident in yourself that you would make great choices? If God just neutralized everything out there in the world and just gave you a moment to positively think and weigh up the goods and the bads about being saved by Jesus and the cross and that you would that you're so brilliant and so clean thinking and clear of mind that you would make the right choice somebody tell me you would come on let's have that good have some guts stand up and say I would do it I've got it all together all you got to do is make a reasonable argument is that how you came to faith Ugo? reasonable argument talked you into it right Anybody? You get talked into it? No, we can give you good answers. We can give you good arguments for why you should believe. 
And if you do, it's because God acted, not because you were sovereign over your life. Impossible. And that should be a cause for great joy. Now, verse 30 and 32, he talks about, what does this mean? He's answering his own question. What does all this mean? It means that the Gentiles were not even looking for God. They didn't care anything about God. They had their own gods, many of them. They weren't looking for them, weren't looking for God, and yet he saved them. And the Jews who were looking for God, but looking for God on their own terms, I will follow these rules, therefore he must save me, he must like me, he must uh, embrace me. They didn't find him. The Gentiles weren't looking, the Jews were looking the wrong way, and yet God finds both of them. So God takes us full circle. He takes us back to the beginnings of Romans where justification can, your being right with God can only be ascribed to one thing. His grace through faith, you trust in Him in Christ alone plus nothing. Now that's different than any religion on the face of the earth and it's different than a lot of even our own Christian faith traditions. Completely different. So what about this rock? He talks about it in 33. They stumbled over the... Why is this a stumbling block to us? Why do we have so much trouble with it? God warned them. I'm placing a stone. I'm going to place this stone and... and There's going to be no way around this stone. It's going to be there and you're either going to trip over it or you're going to make some kind of peace with that rock. And the context of this stumbling, interestingly enough, folks, if you read the the notes in your study Bible and you see where the cross references are to this stumbling, it takes you to Isaiah 7, Emmanuel, God with us. Chapter 8, Emmanuel, God with us. Chapter 28, to God, to the people of Israel, trusting God instead of Mot, the God of death. All of these things are in a context. And so let me finish with this. Listen to this quote by Derek Kidner. I love Dr. Kidner. This verse is saying, God is our refuge or our ruin. He is either our refuge or or our ruined. These splendidly defiant verses are the prophet's response to the meaning, Emmanuel, God with us, and to the Lord's insistence that His strong hand is upon us, that the people should reshape, listen, reshape their thinking, including their terms for things and their emotional attitudes around God Himself. In other words, when you're looking at your life, it's not not enough for you to say, I'm going to put God first in my life, and then I'm going to put my family, and then I'm going to put my church, and then I'm going to put my career. Whatever list you might have, first, second, third, fourth. That's a bad diagram. 
what Isaiah, what Paul, what I'm saying, all these great people from the Bible are saying is, you don't put God first, you put Him central. Everything revolves around Him. But He doesn't stand in a list. He's beyond any list we could possibly make. He is the King, the Creator of the universe, the One who is with you in suffering and the One who delivers you from suffering. Whatever it is, He is the center. And everything else flows around Him. Sometimes work takes precedence. Sometimes family. Sometimes church. Sometimes uh, our own emotional state. Whatever it is. But once you reorient your life to where He is central and everything else is orbiting outside, Isaiah said this, listen. This is from the prophet Isaiah. This is why the doctrine of election is so precious. God is speaking to the people of Jerusalem or to you, the covenant people of God. Yet... Jerusalem, God's covenant people, they say, this is what people were saying, the Lord has deserted us, the Lord has forgotten us. And here's what God answers them. Never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if that were possible, I would not Forget you. You see, I have your name written in the palm of my hand. That is salvation. That is not cooperation. Will you trust Him? Even though there's a lot of mystery about this whole doctrine of election, will you trust Him? I pray you will. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Sometimes it's astonishing when we just step back and look at what you've done for us and what you plan and have done for the whole world. And you charged us to go out with this good news. This is good news. Our father and our mother may forsake us. You never will. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.